Well, remember that I said that this series on Satan and his schemes is sort of like a war plane that looks like it's going to crash and it's going down and down and down. But at the end, it'll pull back up into victory. Well, where we are today is all four engines are on fire and the engine, the, the ground is coming up towards us. So we are going to talk about Satan's deception today. Now, I want to have you turn with me back to Revelation 12. We already read the longer t- context. We'll also look briefly at 2 Corinthians 11, but this is just to get us started. While you're finding that text, I, I love art. I enjoy looking at art. I don't go to museums because I'm the only one in my family that really wants to go to them, and it's terrible to drag them along to something that is not their interest. But one art expert estimates that 20% of all the pieces of art, painting, sculptures, and so forth in Museums are fake, that they're forgeries. The market for counterfeit artwork is huge, and many millions of dollars have been made in the art forgery business. There's one particular forgery that's considered really notorious in the art world. It's an imitation of the famous sculpture called Sleeping Eros. It's a very detailed and lifelike uh, rendering of the Greek god Eros asleep on a rock. Now, the original Sleeping Eros was created during the ancient Greek Uh, empire and in fact it was restored by the romans during the roman empire but in 1496 a little 21 year old artist said i can do that and he made a sleeping eros he buried it in the ground for months so that it would have the appearance of age and then he took chisels and chinked it up a little bit and made it look very old and this young trickster sold the forgery to a catholic cardinal named rafael riario Riario was a great collector of early Roman art. In fact, though, the young man was caught. He was found out. But his forgery was so good that Riario actually ordered two more pieces of art from him. And it launched his career. On any top ten list of artists, this forger, this faker, is always on that list. We know him only by his first name, Michelangelo. He started off saying, I can make more money making a fake than making my own. And so we laugh at that, and it's kind of cute. But what if a forgery, what if a counterfeit had more dire consequences to it? What about when someone counterfeits you? We call that identity theft. What about when someone counterfeits a legitimate company and scams the elderly, for example, out of money, thousands of dollars that they need? Counterfeits are dangerous because you don't know you've been tricked by them until it's too late. You've been duped by them. And of course, counterfeiting, forgery, fakes. These are the brainchild of none other than the father of lies, Satan himself. And in our series on Satan and his schemes, I want to continue today looking at the forgeries of Satan, Satan's deceptions. And we've looked so far at knowing your enemy. We started off with that. We looked at Satan's first attack, his attack on Eve. We looked last time at Satan in the world today. And so today I want to look at Satan's deceptions. And just to give us a couple of starting points here, Revelation 12, verse 9, we've already read the bigger context. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. This is most likely at the midway point of the great tribulation, which has not happened yet. The congregation of Christ, the church, has been taken up out of the world, according to 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, John chapter 14. The time of trouble on the earth is now ramped up to its heightened point. And now, Satan's access to accuse the saints before God in heaven has come to an end. Verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Now, the end of our Bible makes very certain that we're completely clear who our spiritual enemy is. Verse 9, he is the great dragon. This is the metaphor used in the book of Revelation for Satan, and especially in reference to the time of the Great Tribulation. We also see that he is that ancient serpent. Now the end of Satan's reign of terror 
as the great dragon is clearly connected to the beginning of his reign of terror as the serpent in the garden, we see that he's called the devil, the slanderer, and we see, of course, his most famous name, Satan, the adversary, the opponent, the enemy. And so there's no lack of clarity on who your spiritual enemy is here. And what does he do? The end of verse 9, he is the deceiver of the whole world. This is a Greek word that means to lead astray, to cause to wander. And this will be important today. Satan's strategy is not to turn the world 180 degrees. Satan's strategy is to turn the world one degree so that down the road there's a great divergence, a great separation from truth and the lies. And how does he do this? How does he mean to deceive the whole world? Well, turn with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And this is just, again, our starting point. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. How is it that Satan will accomplish this deception of the whole world? While you're finding that, what is his focus in his deception of the whole world? What is he really aiming for? In lightweight gospel light evangelicalism as well as in charismatic circles pentecostal circles and and the prosperity gospel circles the deception of satan is almost painted as a cartoon as a caricature and if you've never been in those circles of believers or professing believers in most cases it goes something like this i went to this gathering and i saw this bowl of ice cream And that bowl of ice cream was from the devil because I've been on my diet for three days and I was not going to go down the road of the devil. That bowl of ice cream was calling to me. That's right, the devil was on me. But I resisted him and I only ate half of it. So we praise God for that. But that's a normal conversation and you're laughing. That's usual. Or something like this. Satan didn't want me to give this $5 to the building campaign. Because I know this $5 will make the difference. God's going to take this $5 and he's going to grow it into $5 million. And Satan didn't want me to give this. But I resisted the devil. And I gave that 5 anyway. Now, that's a cartoon. That's a caricature. One of Satan's deceptions is to have people minimize his role as if he's some sort of supernatural mosquito that just has to be swatted at on occasion. But that's not what he's doing. What I'd like to show you is that the deception of Satan is encapsulated in the counterfeiting of, in the imitating of the very truths which will make the difference between heaven and hell. Imitations which all center on God himself or on the most important things that God has ordained and created. And how does he do this? How does he accomplish the deception of the whole world? Well, here in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is warning the church against false apostles, men who have claimed to receive revelation from God like a genuine apostle, but they're fakes. And now in 2 Corinthians 11, look with me at verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Verse 14, here it is. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So how does Satan intend to accomplish his work of imitating God, imitating all the important things God has ordained and created? By disguise. By disguise. By appearing real. There are many imitations we could look at. I narrowed it down to, I believe, six. They're the most important. Six imitations which Satan puts forward to deceive the whole world. Again, if you're fairly new to Grace Bible Church, our usual practice is to work verse by verse through a Bible book, but this topic makes it necessary for us to jump around. We're going to be going a lot of different places. I don't know that you'd be able to keep up looking up these verses, so you might want to make some notes. But six imitations which Satan puts forward to deceive the whole world. Here's the first imitation. The person of God. The person of God. And we could divide this down. Satan, first of all, imitates God the Father. He imitates God the Father. Jesus said in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. 
When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Did you notice this? The father, God the father, gives life. Satan is a murderer. God the father is the truth. Satan is the father of lies. And yet he imitates the father. And last time we said that Satan is a twisted father. He deceives his children to reject the gospel of Christ. Thus they will spend eternity separated from God forever bearing the consequences of their sin and rebellion, whereas God the Father has done exactly the opposite. What has He done? Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Trust God the Father, you go to heaven. Trust Satan, the father of the world, you go to hell. Satan imitates God the Son as well. He imitates God the Son, and and I would say, it's safe to say that God the Son is the one that Satan is most jealous of, of the triune God. He wanted to be the one that receives the love of the Father. He wanted to be the one that receives the, the adoration of the Father. But Jesus warned in Matthew 24, verse 5, Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. In verse 24 of the same chapter, he says, Many false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So Satan imitates God the Father. He imitates God the Son. And perhaps most heinously of all, he imitates the Holy Spirit. He imitates the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, verse 2 says that the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We pointed out last time that this word work is the same word often used in the New Testament to speak of how the Holy Spirit works in the lives of Christians. Even the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is a precious truth to us, it is that, is which, that, it's that which changes us. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is imitated by Satan as well, but for his own wicked and nefarious purposes, Luke 22.3, we remember, then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, the backstabbing disciple, one of the twelve, the one who would betray Christ. So Satan imitates God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. But even more blatantly, and at the end, or closer to the end of history, Satan's imitation will become more blatant of the Trinity. He will imitate the Trinity. Revelation 13 tells us that during the Great Tribulation, Satan, the dragon, the invisible spirit, will have on the earth the beast. The beast is Antichrist, a human on the earth, the one who will fool the world into worshiping himself, really worshiping Satan. And there will be a second beast, a false prophet. And this false prophet will be the means of, by which the world will worship the first beast, the Antichrist. And as a matter of fact, the second beast, the false prophet, according to Revelation 13, in some way will counterfeit a resurrection of the first beast, the Antichrist, calling Antichrist the one wounded by the sword and yet who lived. And what will the world do? What will all the world do during the Great Tribulation when there is this perceived, somehow falsified, resurrection of the antichrist when they see this what will the world do revelation 13 3 its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast now here's irony for you the lord jesus christ the true son of god actually resurrected from the dead and what has the world done they have ignored him antichrist appearing to be resurrected from the dead And the whole world will marvel. Satan, the dragon, directing these events. Antichrist, the servant of the dragon, seemingly raised from the dead. And the false prophet, causing the worship of Antichrist in the same way that the Holy Spirit causes us to worship the true Christ. In fact, Revelation 16 is even more direct about this counterfeit trinity. Revelation 16, verse 13, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet... Three unclean spirits, a false trinity, because Satan imitates the person of God. He imitates the person of God. There's a second imitation which Satan puts forward to deceive the whole world. 
We'll call this invitation the proclamations of God. The proclamations of God, and we'll divide this into two parts. First of all, Satan wants to distort and twist the gospel. Not completely eliminate every single element of the gospel, because that would be too obvious, but just to distort it, to twist it. The Apostle Paul gave the Galatian church a sharp rebuke and a scolding. You remember in Galatians 1, beginning in verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. And remember, Satan doesn't put his primary emphasis on trying to do the opposite of the gospel. That's not his scheme. His primary emphasis is on trying to distort, to alter, to vary the gospel. For example, there are buildings all over the world that call themselves churches, and they have an organization that meets in these buildings that gives people a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose, a sense of togetherness, and they simultaneously avoid the true biblical gospel so that these people who belong, who have purpose, and who have togetherness can die in their sin and go to hell. That is Satan's scheme. This is why gospel truths must be reiterated. They must be spoken of. They must be proclaimed. They must be taught. They must be memorized. They must be understood. They must be repeated. Every time the word of God is opened, any text of scripture, the gospel implications should be brought out, should be extrapolated, should be explained. In fact, tonight, when we're doing sort of our, our steadfast message, if you want to call it that, because we're not actually having the conference, we're just going to send out some messages. That's going to be our entire focus tonight, is the gospel, getting the gospel right. We have to understand the doctrine of grace. We have to understand the doctrine of election. We have to understand the doctrine of the atonement, of the divine calling, of conversion, of regeneration, of union with Christ, of justification, of sanctification, of glorification, because of the preservation and the perseverance given to us as well. We have to understand these things. But Satan would have you not knowing these things because if you know the truth of the gospel, then that puts to death his gospel deception. He can't deceive anymore. But there's a second part to this, still under the proclamations of God. Satan would do all he can to distract the world and distract the church from the preached word of God, from expository preaching, which exposes and explains the truths of Scripture and then applies them to God's people from the singular source of truth we have, and that is the Bible. I've preached this whole text a number of times, but it's one of my favorites about the proclamation and preaching of the Bible. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. Deuteronomy 31, beginning in verse 11, gives a formula for a life based in preaching. It gives a formula. I'm going to read the text to you, and then I'll tell you the formula. It's right in here. Deuteronomy 31, verse 11 says, When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall Read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men and women and little ones and the sojourner within your towns that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the works of this law, the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. What's the formula? Six words. Reading. Hearing, learning, fearing, obeying, and living. And you see how the first takes you to the last. Reading, the implicit implication here is that the read word of God is also explained. It's preached. Doing the reading, the hearing, the learning, the fearing, the obeying, and the living of the word of God creates Christ-like lives, Christ-like lives give glory to God. Satan's goal is to steal glory from God, and thus he has many methods, many schemes to keep the preached word from God's people. And I'd like to give you five of them. And I want you to be aware of these. There's many more, but we could do just five today. The first scheme we'll call the distracted pulpit. The distracted pulpit. 
This is preaching aimed at church growth. This is preaching aimed at making certain everyone emotionally feels good. Church growth preaching, and there's numbers of books written on this, and they're very blatant about it. I've read many of them just to kind of see what the enemy's doing. But church growth preaching is a whole subset of preaching that scoffs at expository preaching. I have three different times in my ministry had a man face-to-face sneer at me and say, are you, are you an expository preacher? It leans heavily on storytelling. It leans on emotional encouragement, empathy, and a very easy version of the gospel such that anyone would want to join the church. And listen, this is very important. And this is blatant, and this is the goal. Church growth-type preaching, people-pleasing preaching, has the goal, listen carefully, of minimizing the differences between the non-Christian and the Christian. What does the Bible say? How can... Darkness have fellowship with light. How different is the unbeliever from the believer? The same difference is dark and light. There's a second scheme the devil has to distract. We'll call this the distracted life. The distracted life. As a pastor, one of the most discouraging things I ever see are families that year after year, after year after year, cannot get into a pattern of actually being integrated into the church. That sometimes they're in, sometimes they're out. Never know when they're going to be here. When you miss 50% of the sermons in a preaching series that's designed for you to hear all of it, where your intake of the word of God is hit and miss, it's going to have a a horrible effect on you. There's a reason we preach in series. You want to know why? Because I want you to feel like you missed something if you're not here. I want you to feel that. In a way, if I had it my way, we would just like not put sermons online until six months after I preached them. So you don't have that luxury to go back to. But the distracted life, oh, all the things of life. Well, I've been, I've been tired. Well, you don't understand this, I don't understand that. And you blink and a decade has gone by of unfaithfulness. How about this one? This one hits home for me, the distracted pastor. The distracted pastor Satan would love for churches to make certain their pastors are doing everything possible such that the study of God's word is the last priority. One study put together what church members in a certain group of Baptist churches thought their pastor ought to be doing besides preaching, and they came up with, you ready for this, a 114-hour work week besides preaching. Satan desires for a weariness of the study of God's word to set in. He desires for the, the, the tiredness of not wanting to study by, because I'm busy with a thousand other things. That's what he desires. And very sadly, countless churches report their pastors getting weaker in the pulpit. A majority of churches with pastors who have been there over 10 years, the majority of the members believe their pastors are worse in the pulpit than when they got there. How would you do if you were worse at your job after 10 years? I don't think you'd be there for 10 years. What should be happening, though? What should be happening is that because of study, because of the richness of hour after hour and day after day and week after week, month and year and decade in the Word of God, the well of truth, the well of ability, the well of preaching should be endless with the knowledge of God's Word such that preaching grows and grows and grows. The distracted pastor, Satan loves them. How about the distracted heart? This is one of Satan's schemes to get you off of expository preaching. The distracted heart, there is a reason. The 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 prescribes the heart attitude of church members toward their pastors. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. That's not for my sake. That's for your sake. Because listen, the moment you stop respecting, the moment you stop esteeming in love, your ears become stopped. And you don't want to hear what's being said from the word of God. There's one more scheme that Satan has to get you off of expository preaching, the distracted mind. The distracted mind. We fight the fight against distraction when the word of God is being preached, don't we? That fight is always there. 
We attempt to fight off every distraction we possibly can, even in the design of our worship space, in the place we worship. There's a reason we don't gather on the median of a major highway to worship because it's filled with distraction. Every one of you is in the battle for distraction as you listen. That's always been the case. And now in the 21st century to be Fully engaged in an hour of preaching is very, very difficult for this generation. There's a reason that television shows go from scene to scene to scene to scene to scene because we don't like to pay attention anymore and we've lost our capacity for it. Now, all of these distractions, the distracted pulpit, the distracted life, distracted pastor, distracted heart, the distracted mind, what do they all have in common? Listen carefully. They attack at the early part of the formula from Deuteronomy 31, the reading, hearing, and learning phases. They get you at the beginning so that you never get to the fearing, obeying, and living phases. Because those would glorify God. And Satan would not have that. There's a third imitation which Satan puts forward to deceive the whole world. We'll call this one the people of God. The people of God, Satan puts forward imitation people of God at three different levels. Three different levels. Level one, we'll call these imitation Christians. Imitation Christians. Last week, we read in Matthew 13, the parable of the weeds in which Jesus said that the kingdom is like a field in which both the wheat and the weeds or the tares grow up together. And the weeds look very much like the wheat, the false believers mixed in with the true the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 said one of the great dangers he faced in the gospel ministry was from what he called false brothers. The Greek word is pseudodelphois, meaning pseudo brothers, fake brothers. He describes in Galatians 2, 4, false brothers secretly have been brought in. In fact, Jesus himself gives the, the greatest, the most dire warning of judgment to the false brothers Matthew seven twenty one. not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What does it mean to say, Lord, Lord? It means to call on the name of the Lord, but not unto salvation. There's the imitation Christians. There's a second level, imitation shepherds. Imitation shepherds. We already saw that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, But the very next verse Verse 15, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. The Apostle John warns in 2 John verses 10 and 11 of those who teach anything other than the biblical gospel. He says, quote, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. In 3 John, John warns against Diotrephes. Diotrephes was most likely an elder in the church who is a troublemaker and not a shepherd. Diotrephes has to have the last word, has to have his way. He speaks against teaching shepherds and, in fact, was refusing to admit good Bible teachers into the church. Why? Because he was an imitation shepherd. And, of course, level three takes it all the way to the macro level, imitation churches. Imitation churches in both Revelation 2.9 and 3.9, Jesus called, calls whole groups in the church who are false believers. He calls them the synagogue of Satan. Those who claim to be worshipers of God as religious people, but as a group, as an entirety, as an organization, they're false and they serve their father, the devil. I would say that today, the most prevalent imitation church would be Roman Catholicism. The Catholic Catechism teaches, quote, that all men may attain salvation through faith, baptism, and the observance of the commandments. In other words, salvation is attained by being a good person. And how has this come about? Was there a day in history where all the real Christians or some of the real Christians said, you know what, let's invent something called the Catholic Church. Let's put, the, uh, let's put guys who aren't ministers anymore, let's call them priests and put them in really goofy-looking robes. Let's have them wear hats that look like giant Q-tips. Let's do all kinds of stuff. No. It went off track slowly over time. 
Roman Catholicism abandoned the biblical gospel, abandoned the sole authority of Scripture many centuries ago with a history of straying further and further and further from the truth. In the 8th century, the Roman Catholic religion authorized the worship of icons and statues, especially those of Christ, Mary, the saints, and angels. Also in the 8th century, we saw the rise now of corrupt popes. In the 12th century, priests are forbidden to marry. Forget the fact that uh, the qualification of an, el- of an elder is to be the husband of one wife. In the 13th century, they invented the doctrine of transubstantiation, that Jesus is literally present in the elements of the body and the blood of Christ in, in communion, that he's actually being crucified again. In the 13th century also, the Roman Catholic religion decreed the need for confession to a priest in order to maintain your salvation. But we have one high priest, the great high priest, Jesus Christ. In the 15th century, ostensibly because so many people were leaving the Roman Catholic Church, they decided to invent a post-death doctrine of salvation. They call it purgatory. That, hey, even if you die in your sin, you still get a second chance. In the 16th century, the Council of Trent, original sin and the doctrine of justification by faith alone were rejected outright. And by the way, At the Council of Trent, they also said that the Catholic Church alone may correctly interpret Scripture, not the average person, just the church. Why were they saying this? Because of the Great Reformation had this really irritating thing that put Bibles in the hands of regular people. And so now, even to this day, how are most Catholic Masses held? In Latin. How many people here know Latin when you hear it? A couple of you, maybe? In the 19th century... At the First Vatican Council, they established the doctrine of papal infallibility, that the Pope is infallible in all that he says about faith and morals. And finally, in the 20th century, they finally just said it outright at the Second Vatican Council, the Catholic Church is the only way of salvation. Not Christ, not the cross, but the church. It is an imitation church that now bears no resemblance to the faith given in the New Testament. Can I put it this way? Catholic Christian is an oxymoron. There's a fourth imitation which Satan puts forward to deceive the whole world. The praise of God. The praise of God. Paul says something chilling in 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 21. He's warning those in the church who were still ostensibly on Saturday night or Friday night, going to their old pagan temple with their friends there and participating in pagan feasts and idol worship and rituals, and then on Sunday morning going to church and doing what? Receiving the Lord's table. And he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? In other words, will you keep on testing God by taking of the idols of demons and coming to receive the Lord's table? You think something bad's not going to happen to you? Notice, by the way, the origin of false worship. It is demonic. It is demonic. It is from Satan. What about in the church today? How does the praise of God, remember, not 180 degrees uh, altered, but how does it go off track slowly? Aside from the fact that ridiculous things are being added to what is so-called worship, what about those elements that we hold dear that the Bible prescribes? The theologically rich songs of our faith get slowly replaced with songs about how we feel about God. Truth gets replaced with repetitious lines which paint God not as holy, holy, holy God, but as relevant, desperate, he needs me God. And God is now painted as an emotional being whose life will not be complete until you come to faith. And the songs begin to focus on making the lost person feel saved instead of presenting truths which are in stark contrast to that lost person's spiritual condition. A true hymn of the faith ought to make the lost person run to the cross, not think he's already gotten there. How about the Lord's table? The Lord's table loses its gravity, its weightiness when it's taken from a ritualistic heart or or without appropriate significance of examining your own heart before partaking. We're reminded in 1 Corinthians 11 
that those who partake of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, some of them were being made sick and even dying at the hand of God. And yet now, all over our country, many churches have abandoned the Lord's table altogether. Why? Because they say it makes the lost person visiting feel unwelcome. No, it should make the lost person visiting feel like they're not part of the body, and therefore they should come to faith. How about the prayers of our worship? The prayers of our worship now in so many contexts focus on Jesus as my buddy and my pal, trying to create this informal hangout friend picture of Jesus Christ. I've been in settings, in worship services or in in Bible studies, where the, the leader, instead of addressing holy God, says something like, hey, Jesus, we're so glad to be here. We're so glad to hang out with you. You're a buddy, you're our pal, and, and hey, Holy Spirit, come on in. We would love to have you. Instead of remembering that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and it is by his hand that his enemies will be crushed and blood will be flowing for 200 miles after the battle of Armageddon because of the words of Jesus Christ. And prayers become God our buddy. Say that to his face. How about the preached word? Preached word is radically transformed into an intentionally informal event. Primarily meant to demonstrate how relevant and cool the preacher is. That that's what it's about. He understands me so much. Who cares whether I understand you? It is the word of God that understands you. How about the offerings that we give to God, they're so often emphasized not as a sacrificial gift of love, but as a way simply to get God to give back to me. How about the prescribed scripture reading? The prescribed scripture reading that we are to engage in the reading of scripture, it's gotten shorter and shorter and shorter. I read an article recently that said, you should never read in one worship services worship service more than three verses. Why? Because people might get bored. Between Darren and I, generally, we try to read three to four chapters of the Bible to you every Lord's Day. We sneak it in there, but we do get it in. If you are bored with the Word of God, you don't know the God of the Word. And in all of this, the heart attitude of the worshiper has been slowly transformed into a heart that is different than the heart of worship prescribed in Scripture. If you go on many churches' websites, and it's funny when it's even a church with 20 people in it, and you click on the tab Worship, you will see a stock photo. I think they all use the same one. It's of a big stage with a 97-member band up there, spotlights everywhere, and people jumping up and down with their arms up in the air. I'm not making a statement one way or another about raising hands during music worship. What I am saying is that is not the biblical posture of worship. The biblical posture of worship in the Old Testament Hebrew, hishtakawa, which means to get down on your face before God. In the New Testament, pipto, it means to fall down before God. That's the posture of worship. It's not a party. It is a time to come before God and praise Him that your sins have been forgiven and you start on your face. That's why we don't do confession at the end. We do it at the beginning. Satan imitates the praise of God. He's done a pretty good job to the tune of 500 million people in the charismatic movement, Pentecostal movements, and they're engaged in false worship. The fifth imitation which Satan puts forward to deceive the whole world, we'll call this one the preeminence of God. The preeminence of God. Now, as Americans, we're not very familiar with the idea of a monarchy. In fact, we, we tend to be pretty suspicious. We think of kings as an oppressive and dangerous idea, and it has been throughout history, Since kings are sinners, all through history, monarchs have abused their power to become dictators, not kings. And this results in death, it results in cruelty, it results in tyranny. Monarchies are going out of style. As of today, there are only 44 actual sovereign nations in the world with a king or a queen as the head of state. Geographically, in fact, those nations comprise a very, very small percentage of the world. And of those 44 nations, only a handful of them are actual absolute monarchies in which the monarch has total political power. And so we're naturally suspicious of this. 
And yet, there is something in me and there is something in you that yearns for a king. We long for a king. There's something in the human spirit that yearns for a monarch, not an oppressive, corrupt king, but we yearn for a king to protect us, to unite us. The king is a rallying point. I think this is one of the reasons that presidential elections kind of get us excited. It's the closest thing we have to crowning the king. Now, how do I know that something in the human spirit yearns for a king? First of all, the Bible speaks of monarchies over 3,000 times. It's interwoven into the Bible, but here's how we really know. The entire point of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is that a king is coming. That's the point. A human king, just like us, only he has all the divine attributes of God. He is a king who is perfectly wise, perfectly strong, perfectly loving, perfectly just. As we saw last week, this coming kingdom of Christ is something we're to long for and look for. Listen, we're even commanded to pray, aren't we? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed is your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One of the most glorious and exciting verses in all the Bible speaks of the day when Christ will return. Revelation 11 verse 15 says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's what we yearn for. The Christian knows why. The non-Christian doesn't know why. But if we explain the gospel to them, then they'll understand. But listen, whether you knew it or not, you were born part of a kingdom already. You were a kingdom citizen, but you were a citizen of an invisible realm, and it is the realm of Satan. You were a child of the living devil. Satan is jealous of the kingdom of God. He longs to be the king, and to a certain extent, he is king at this moment. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the ruler of this world. But when the Holy Spirit, as part of God's plan, plucked you up from your own sin, your citizenship changed. It changed over. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain, so word that means kingdom, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Small problem. We still live in the domain of darkness. We're still here. Wouldn't it be great if in God's plan, every time you became a Christian, you just get taken to the kingdom of heaven? But we're here. It is God's will that we're here. We're, we're living this challenge. You abide in enemy territory. You're not of this world. You're a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, living in a world ruled by the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, we saw last week that the nations have princes of Satan, demons over them. One city, Pergamum, is even called the throne of Satan. Oh, and how Satan wants to hang on to this. We read in Revelation 12 that he knows his time is short. His authority is burning down like a fuse, and it's going all the way to explosion when his doom and destruction is sure. And how he longs to be the king. That's his goal as the current king of this world, he leads the rulers and the nations into rebellion and into wickedness. The, the nations rage and plot against God with their dark and evil actions, moving ever more toward the satanic goal of a completely godless world. And we know this from Psalm 2, but we also take hope from Psalm 2, beginning in verse 4, that he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. But in the meantime, you live in the domain of darkness. You're not part of it. You're a citizen of heaven. But you live here, and Satan would try to imitate the kingdom of God. One more imitation which Satan puts forward to deceive the whole world. We'll call this one the power of God. The power of God. A little bit of pseudo-Christian history here. In the 1980s and 90s, men primarily led by John Wimber and C. Peter Wagner were at the forefront of what was later labeled the Signs and Wonders Movement. The Signs and Wonders Movement originated in Calvary Chapel, in part in that movement, and at Fuller Theological Seminary and spread like wildfire all over the world. 
The entire focus of faith now became receiving and seeing miracles, helped along, of course, by closed auditoriums, loud music played for for sometimes even hours to provide almost a hypnotic effect. Wimber and Wagner did seminars and services all over the world. They spoke to audiences of tens of thousands at a time. And their byword, their theme, their motto, their focus was on one word, and that was power. To receive power. And anyone who didn't receive massive power from God in terms of healing or wealth or all that you wanted, they were considered lacking in faith. They were helped along by Dr. Jack Deere, who forsook the true faith. He was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary and basically turned into the leading so-called theologian of the Signs and Wonders movement. Now, the Signs and Wonders movement isn't what it used to be. Why? Because they couldn't live up to their, their billing. They couldn't deliver the goods consistently. When you have a crowd of 10,000 people, five of them claim to have received miracles, and none of those five are verifiable. Four of them later recant. And the one that doesn't is because they can't find him. It doesn't hold water. But the problem is, the impact on Christianity has been massive, and it continues even to this day. Today, In Bakersfield, California, you too can go to the Bakersfield Miracle Healing Center to receive your miracle. If that's not convenient, you can go online as well to their online healing rooms. Of course, the Bethel Church movement is big into what they call their healing ministry, Signs and Wonders. They're famous for sending members to hospitals on faith healing missions. I I was thinking about this, and maybe you can help me. Can you think of a recent fabulous opportunity to send healers to hospitals to empty them out? I've been scratching my head. Oh, yeah. How about coronavirus? But in March, Bethel Church stopped their faith healing missions because they didn't want coronavirus. In fact, you can hardly find anything by Bethel folks on coronavirus, although they did a few months ago post a story about a man in Switzerland, part of the Bethel movement, who is in ICU with coronavirus, and his church came to the hospital, and they declared that the presence of God was going to invade the hospital. Quote, the next morning, he had recovered 50%. That's not much of an invasion. Like God's going, hey, give him my best shot there. But it does sound exciting, doesn't it? Sounds exciting to be able to go someplace and have that malady healed, have those bills paid. One little problem. They left out the gospel. They left out the gospel because now God is couched in terms of existing to give you things and do things for you to answer your prayers that you need this or that or this or that. Ignoring the greatest sign, the greatest miracle of all. And that is that a holy God would come down, reaching down to the depths of depravity of humanity and through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, and through his resurrection, turn you, a wicked sinner headed for hell, into a perfect worshiper of God. Now that's a sign and that's a wonder. But Satan would have humanity believe counterfeit power This is going to have dire eternal consequences. Jesus said in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 22, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In fact, this is only going to ramp up. The coming of Antichrist in the future will be marked by miracles. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says the coming of the lawless one, that is Antichrist, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Do you see now when you read in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John how important it is that the Lord Jesus Christ as the true Son of God, the only Messiah, the only Christ, how important it is that he came performing mass quantities of miracles. He healed organic disease completely. He always healed totally, no 50% healings. He healed observable maladies such as blindness and and deafness and paralysis. They're miracles of nature, of walking on water, of calming the winds. Oh, and if that wasn't enough, how about raising the dead? 
Here's the real signs and wonders movement. John 20, beginning in verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In the next chapter, John 21, 25, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Did you know that in the province of Galilee, Jesus literally rid the entire area of disease completely? That's a sign and wonder movement right there by the only one who is legitimate. Well, Satan's movements in this world are imitations. He imitates the person of God, the proclamations of God, the people of God, the praise of God, the preeminence of God, the power of God. Let me add one more, one more that he imitates. He will imitate in the heart of the unbeliever the confidence in self. He will imitate confidence in self. I'm a good person. I think I'll stand before God and I'll tell him how I helped this little old lady across the street. I'll tell him how I was a good child. I'll tell him how I've never robbed a bank. I'll tell him how I've never murdered anybody. I paid my taxes mostly on time. I'll give him all this and God will say, well done, you did a great job. That is the ultimate deception, the confidence in self. And can I say to you, you will be highly surprised Romans 3 says that when you stand before God, every mouth will be closed. You will not give a defense. You will not give your resume. You will not tell God how wonderful you were. You will not give a list of how many things you did that were good. God will say, you are not good. Because Romans 3 says there's no one who does good. No, not one. There's no one who has sought after God. All have turned aside completely. That is the deception that Satan would take as the father of lies to lie you to hell. And so could I say that right now you have heard the truth of the gospel? You may have been in this church for a while. It doesn't matter. I don't know your heart. But you need to hear the gospel and be regenerated. Cry out to the Lord for faith and he will give it to you. We said earlier that Satan imitates the proclamation of God, the proclamation of the gospel. Well, that's what we're going to spend all of our time on tonight. We're going to spend our our time on getting the gospel right. We're going to take a little break from the book of Numbers, and we're going to do our quote-unquote steadfast sermon. Don't have a conference, but we'll have a sermon. And tonight, we're going to look at getting the gospel right, and we're going to nail it down to the specifics of the gospel to make certain you understand and that you are able to spread that truth. Let's pray for just a moment. Our Father, we thank you for the Word of God, the massive clarity that we have with a Bible that is aggressively accurate. And with the Word of God, we have exposed all the schemes of the evil. When we've exposed Satan's deceptions, we can see how wrong they are. We can see that the answer is, is the truth. Yes, he is an ancient enemy, but we have ancient words, ancient words of truth, which will guide us home. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.